0: Hey everybody, it is Ben again at the Northeast Georgia History Center, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Thomas Green, who is on the faculty at the University of North Georgia. And he gets to study some things that a lot of us think are pretty cool, which is medieval history. So Dr. Green, tell us a little bit about yourself, why you like medieval stuff, and and what your general areas of expertise are.
1: Well, oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, I'm an, an early medieval historian. I work on the Carolingians, the ninth century. So that's Charlemagne, a name pe- some people know, and his, his son and grandson mostly. I did my PhD at Loyola University, Chicago, and I'm a, particularly interested in monasticism and the history of the emotions and the senses uh, and monastic experience.
0: That's cool. And And for those of you who don't know, you can look up his bio on the UNG website. He has a fantastic beard. He really looks the part, I and mean, <laughs> the, the eminent medieval
1: historian. So I do. It's it's much better now. Um, my COVID beard is.
0: <laughs> but anyway, so you've got um, so you've looked at you know, monasticism and the ninth century and the Carolingians. As a medieval historian, you get pulled into a lot of different things from the period. You sort of have to be the expert at the university. And what with the COVID thing that you mentioned that we've been living through the last little bit, people are always gonna start making comparisons between plagues of the past. And I know that can for someone who understands those a little better, that can be really, really frustrating, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a uh... A double-edged sword, it's great that people want to know more about what happened in the 14th century in Europe. And there are lots of great medieval historians who work on that that period, specifically on the plague. And so it's, you know, the, there are very few things that happen that point people back to the Middle Ages the way a, an outbreak of some kind of disease does. <laughs> It's nice to have people interested in your in your period, but most of what we've seen in the last six months or so that's been published in a form that's accessible to the public is is either really superficial or uh, or flat out wrong. So yeah, it's frustrating, and it's um, it's an opportunity for us as medievalists to, uh, if people would would bother to ask us to um, to talk about things that we can compare usefully and things that we shouldn't they're talking about.
0: Say, Dr. Green, what sort of comparisons can one draw and what sort of comparisons should one not draw?
1: Well, I think the comparisons have to be limited. It's a different disease. It spreads differently. It emerged, obviously, in a different time and place and context. The plague itself is, uh, the, the medieval plague, is a complicated subject. It's not just bubonic. It had three or four different forms uh, all that all spread by different mechanisms. And so in terms of human reaction and human experience, there are some useful comparisons to be made. What happens when a new disease appears in your society, one that either you don't know or is in a form that you can't control. Those comparisons are useful, I think. I think it's also useful to to compare governmental response. Uh, A lot of times when we talk about the plague in medieval Europe, we talk about, quite rightly, the, the people who got it and lived through it and wrote about it. But we don't talk as often about effects to mitigate it, except to maybe denigrate those effects as backwards and superstitious. But there were medieval governments and they tried with varying degrees of success to to limit the effects of the plague. And so those comparisons are useful. What do people, how do ordinary people interpret and react? What do the experts say? How does government respond? How does society respond? And I think the frustrating thing for medievalists is when, well, one of two things happens. Either descriptions of the plague are used as a another opportunity to bash the ignorance of the past and sort of tout our superiority in the present to the past which if you look around over the last six months we don't we don't seem too superior or or the plague is is inserted into this kind of broad antiquated medieval narrative there was an article about the to call out any one specific publication. But there was an article in The New Yorker recently that talked about the end of feudalism and the beginning of the Renaissance. And the plague, of course, was the harbinger of both of those. And medievalists haven't talked in those terms in 50 years at least. So there was an understandable reaction to that. So I think the the useful comparisons are very broad, kind of affective human things. But beyond that, you can't, I mean, we don't live in the 14th century. We don't have medieval mentalities or worldviews or systems of government or technologies or any of the other things, the past isn't a sort of prescription for the future. And so other than very broad comparisons, I don't know how much you get out of comparing the pandemic now to to the plague itself. Probably the, the, the best one
0: that we can assertively use is Hey, it could be worse. Yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> you know, if we lose a third of our population,
1: we haven't we haven't quite reached the mortality figures yet of uh, of the plague. It's a good cautionary example of what what not to do in some cases. Medieval people got some things right: run out run out of the cities, you know, get away from the pandemic if you can don't go out in public when there's a raging pandemic. Take whatever science tells you are the precautions. If you do go out in public, those things were true in the Middle Ages too. Science was wrong. But, you know, Boccaccio's famous description of the plague in Florence has people walking around holding either cloth soaked in vinegar or bouquets of flowers up to their faces in an effort to ward off the plague. They had an idea of what was going on. It isn't our understanding of it now, and they maybe did a better job implementing their solutions than we're doing in some states in particular.
0: Right. And, and you know, I think I think one point you're making is pretty good in that some of their science may have been wrong on the details, but somehow the things they were doing were good practices,
1: you know. Well, they thought they were. And I think that's maybe the yeah. point that whether the plague spread through bad air, which it doesn't, obviously, but that was their science. They listened to their experts, sort of mocking them for their for response, which you see a lot. I um, mean, try to pray the plague away. Obviously, that's not going to work. But, but you know, they had religious experts that were also their scientific experts. And if you read accounts of people's reaction to the plague, a lot of them did a better job listening to those experts than we did. And I think one of the frustrating things for medievalists is the sort of use of the past to prop ourselves up, to bash the past. And sure, their science was wrong, but they listened to it, uh, at least in, in some cases.
0: And you, you know, you're, you're definitely preaching the choir because a lot of what, We've talked about on this on this podcast and before is how the past is its own thing, and it's very harsh to to judge the past. Again, specifically if we're trying to prop ourselves up, because can you imagine what they're going to say about us in a hundred years?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know, as historians, we have to be whatever our period. We have to be careful about about how we use the past, what we say about it. If we are judging it, you know, what criteria are we using, and what point are we making by doing it? There's a lot. There are a lot of things in the Middle Ages that we would rightly condemn now. But one of the things that that early medievalists in particular have been saying for the last, I don't know, eight or ten years is, you know, they didn't get everything wrong. And one of the dangers of, of standing in the present is looking back and saying, Well, we've made so much progress that we have nothing to learn from these people but negative examples. And and I don't think that's necessarily true. I think sometimes people in the past had a better solution maybe not the plague specifically, but, but in general, people in the past had sometimes maybe better solutions to the human problems we all face as humans living in groups. And and if we only look at the past as the sort of litany of mistakes not to be repeated, we miss out on some opportunities to, to question what we're doing and, and ask, can we use them as a model for, for maybe a better solution in the present to some of the problems we're having?
0: Uh, and even just an appreciation of the past can, can go a long way. You know. One of the things that people love to say is those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it and i i personally hate that phrase because you can learn so much from the past and there are some things in the past that would be awesome to repeat i think wouldn't it be great to have another enlightenment wouldn't it be great to have you know another gigantic scientific advance wouldn't it be great to have a a a pax romana where most of the known world is at, is at peace for a long time. You know, there's there there are things that bear study, that bear repeating. And, and as you say, it's not a roadmap for us, but it, it can provide some some excellent, informative guideposts to kind of help us on our way. And your study of monasticism is, is one of those that I've often told people, you know, so many people reject faith in the Middle Ages as something so primitive and backwards. And yet I've said, you know, and, and you you can disagree with me. This is much more your area of expertise than mine, but that that monastic way of life can have a lot of appeal to it, where you can, you know, focus on the here and now, where it's very it's very contemplative life. It's a very simple life. It's it's a community based life that, that tries to live very purposefully without the well to minimize not not a good deal away with but minimize the effects of, of an outside influence
1: yeah, I think you know monasticism Oh, well, we've all kind of been living it for the last six months or so. quarantine reminds me in some ways a lot of monasticism in the outside world. you interact with it as little as possible when you do you do it very intentionally and with the proper precautions you know maybe we don't have the, the sort of sense of structure that they had. I think they were better able to cope with their isolation from the from their world because they had the benedictine rule or whatever rule they followed the kind of structure their lives it's one of the things i've been struggling with is you know unstructured time how hard it is to to live without time discipline in a Sort of industrial and post-industrial world where we've been conditioned to think about time as regimented and disciplined in a way that that quarantine is is kind of undone for us but you're right the the community center the minimal consumption the living locally and small a very small life monasticism is is in the early middle ages at least is often talked about as a, a refuge from all sorts of oppressive social norms, gender norms in particular. There's a lot to, I mean, even if you want to take the, the Catholicism, the faith out of it, there's a lot in the medieval monastic world that could serve as inspiration for a different way of understanding social relationships. If only people would jettison their notion of the backwards, dirty, stupid, misguided, dark age, medieval history that, that shows up you know, everywhere, including that New Yorker.
0: I'm sure you haven't listened to all 51 of our previous podcasts, but we spend an entire one basically yelling and berating about the in just the phrase, the dark ages. And it's a little more than a 20-minute screed about how we hate <laughs> that term
1: and how inappropriate it is. It's the bane of my existence as a medievalist, really. It's the thing people know when they walk into the medieval history survey. That, you know, they're going to study the dark ages, and, you know, day one in part is let's get rid of this term let's understand where it came from historiographically and then let's never use it again right
0: (laughs) ever so you're interest in and passion for the study of the medieval period how far back does that go did that did that seed get planted when you were in college or, or is it even older?
1: i think i had what is is emerging as kind of a typical medievalist interest as a kid i played dungeons and dragons i read fantasy literature I knew it! <laughs> and, you know so i think i had that child i don't know if that led directly to it but um, But I certainly was exposed to kind of pop culture tropes of the Middle Ages. We didn't have a medievalist when I was an undergrad, so I didn't take a medieval history course. I did take a course called New Topics in Social History when I was a junior, and that had a a unit on the history of death. And we read uh, Philippe Alfiez's Hour of Our Death, which is wrong, but medieval. And so that that was probably my first academic introduction. To the middle ages was thinking about it as a you know as an aspect of social history. And then when I went to grad school, I thought, well, if I want to you know if I want to study anything, then that's what I want to study. I want to do kind of social history, emotions history, uh, and medieval history all together. But I don't know if there was a specific catalyst for that other than that new topics in social history course, which which got me thinking about the history of emotions. Uh, death and Dying was kind of the entry into that. I wrote a paper on grief in the Middle Ages for that course, so so that that kind of carried over from undergrad to grad school.
0: You said that you look at emotions, and that I think that's something a lot of folks don't really see as an academic pursuit. But it, it certainly has been something that the profession has looked at. Can you can you go and just a little bit scratch the surface detail of exactly what you mean when you say you know that's just, How do you tie together monasticism? and the history of emotion and things like
1: that. Yeah, so quickly, the history of emotions is is kind of exactly what it sounds like, although there are different approaches. My approach is that what we call emotion is socially constructed phenomenon, that it isn't in our bodies or in our brains, but it's in the vocabulary we use to talk about it. It positions us in relationship to other people. And there are different ways. I mean, that's not the only way to think about it. There is a, a sort of biological way where emotions are constant throughout. Human history. Uh, there's a cognitive way where they're they're more in the brain than they are either in the body or in language. Uh, but I think about them as a social cues for people talking to each other, as positional statements, as what do we call them? Goal relevant statements. People that people make about themselves and other people. And in monasticism, what I'm really interested in is how do notions of whatever the emotions are in the senses they kind of work together for me. The history of the emotions. and and sensory history. But how does that, how do ninth century notions of emotion and emotionality affect monastic experience? What are monks supposed to feel when they go through their monastic vocation, whether it be praying, uh, office, the monastic hours that they, they do at designated times during the day, whether it's the liturgy, which is what I've been writing on recently, when they're at mass, how do medieval notions of what emotions were which aren't necessarily what our notions are how do those things inform monastic experience so it's almost a phenomenological study humans in a particular place and time performing specific tasks leading a different specific lifestyle as we've talked about and how do how do their emotions inform their experience or how can we use their emotions to get at their experience knowing what we know about ninth century notions of of what the emotions were in general
0: i guess that a lot of that is really really requires a different approach to reading the primary sources that has been used in the past
1: right you pay a lot more attention to emotion words than you would a lot of times what we find when we look at at early emotion studies in the middle ages is that medievalists who were interested in this were reading Sources that were thought to be objective and unemotional legal uh, charter evidence, a lot of it. Uh, And emotion words turned up everywhere. And that was one of the early catalysts to getting that the, the field established is pointing out that in every source, even these sort of dry legal formulaic charter sources, you find emotion words. So, yeah, you're looking for places where the emotions not just are present, but are doing some sort of work in the sources where they're not just background noise. I don't know that they ever really are, but where they're important to understanding what's happening in the source uh, or to the people that are that are described in the source. So you definitely read sources differently than you would traditionally. I work a lot with biblical commentaries, explanations of uh, of different books of the Bible, or there's a, a genre of liturgical commentary where the mass is broken down to and explained. And I'm not as interested in the theology in those, which is how they traditionally be read, as I am in the times and places and circumstances in which emotions crop up. So yeah, you kind of read the sources Against themselves in some ways, reading for things they weren't designed to tell you, which is good social history practice anyway.
0: That's fascinating. I've never, you know, I, that's something I've never done in any of my my work or training, and now I kind of want to go back. Yes, folks, I'm a nerd. I have copies of medieval charters on my bookshelf. Go back and those, and and kind of kind of reread those in a different light for the first time. That is absolutely fascinating. Okay, one more question for you. When you were when you were going through. Your graduate school and everything, and you talked about like so many of us, you've grown up with medieval tropes and and medievalism and things like that. What for you was the hardest one to give up, to
1: get over, to let go of? That's really interesting. I think that my sort of the the answer that jumps the jumps out immediately is the age of faith, and maybe it's because I work with. Religious sources—that that's an important part of of the way I understood the Middle Ages going in and kind of have to work work within those tropes moving forward. I, uh, you know, it, it, we call it well, used to thankfully don't anymore. Call it the Age of Faith. Everybody's religious. Everybody's Catholic. There's one option. The Church controls it. Sometimes you know oppressively, and sometimes you know protect them from the heretics and then purity of faith and all that stuff. And and nothing could be further from the truth, even in the sort of later Middle Ages when the church is an institution, which it isn't in the early Middle Ages. I think that getting rid of that, everybody was Catholic and everybody listened to their priest and everybody had a sort of higher baseline level of religious conviction. I think that, especially working with monastic sources, that was probably the hardest as a, a young grad student to get rid of. The Middle Ages is just as heterodox as any other time in European history that just because some priest or bishop Wrote a sermon that talks about something doesn't mean people believed it or doesn't mean it was happening. If it was condemned, I think that understanding that that medieval people were in respect to their their relationship with religion were just as human as we were. They questioned, they doubted, they they listened, you know, strategically within their own lives to what was happening. Uh, if they went to to church at the pulpit, and I think we we do them a disservice when we just see them as sort of Catholic automatons moving through their lives doing the you know, unquestionably internalizing what we know from elite sources about medieval religion. You know, most of what we have is is religious or written by, by religious people, at least. And that's really skewed our understanding, I think, of religion in the Middle Ages.
0: That is a fantastic place to end, I think. Uh, Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us. Um, then again, hopefully we'll be able to pull you in and uh, and get you to do some more of these with us so we can we can dig down into some, some nerdy history details. I'd be happy to, anytime you like. That's it. Thanks a lot, folks. I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. To learn more about the Northeast Georgia History Center, visit www.negahc.org.